What's up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of Uncommon Sense. I'm your host, Kevin Tony, and I wanted to check in today. So many different things that are on my mind. A lot has happened since the last episode, uh, both in this country and in my personal life. You know, I've had some things, you know, some milestones that have taken place that have had me kind of taking some perspective of where I am in my life. Um, One of the things that happened that really was kind of different for me is, you know, my son started first grade this year and it was different because last year he was virtual. This year he's, you know, back in school physically going um, every day. Of course, he's having to wear a mask, which, you know, I'm not that happy about, but I am glad that he's getting the experience of physically being in school and seeing what that journey is like uh, to start with. So uh, we have that and I'm fresh off the 12th anniversary of my marriage. My wife and I just celebrated 12 years uh, of being married. We've been together for 14 years, married for 12. And um, so that's that's been Another pretty exciting milestone that uh, just some things that we've been celebrating here in my household, along with some of the things that are happening in America, some things that are happening in the world. You know, I've been paying attention, you know, since the last episode, we've had the whole fiasco in Afghanistan, um, which has really been a really hot button issue in this country for a lot of people for a lot of different reasons understandably so um and i have my opinions about that i have my thoughts and my feelings about it um there's a lot of things that have been happening you know from a christian perspective in different circles you know i've been just seeing some things on and hearing some things on the wire that are just kind of you know annoying so there are a couple of things. It's, it's really been giving me a lot of uh, material to kind of come in here and flesh out with you all, uh, with the listeners, and you know, just kind of share my thoughts and my perspectives, you know, as it relates to certain things that were hap- that are happening uh, in society. But you know, to be to be um, in the in the position that I'm in, you know, I've really been thinking about. You know, marriage, I've been thinking about, you know, of course, you know, this time of year is always, uh, you know, I take stock of where I am in terms of my my marriage, you know, the health of it, you know, what what kind of condition it's in. I'm, you know, doing self checks and it's not just this time of year. I'm constantly doing that. You know, I'm, I'm constantly mindful of the emotional, mental and physical state of my marriage. I think that's important as it relates to the family structure. Uh, I think good husbands and good wives always, you know, continue to, to have a pulse on what's happening in their marriage. And when you don't have that, I think that's when things start to break down uh, and that, you know, can become a breeding ground for you know, all sorts of things that can cause division uh, in a marriage and, you know, kind of lead to eventually the collapse 
of of your um, your marriage to your spouse. And, you know, I, I thank God for my wife. I thank God for my marriage. Um, we we do we, we do well to go out of our way to continue to be relevant to each other. Um, and, and that means, you know, that that can be challenging while we're, you know, trying to parent as well as, you know, be a be a husband or be a wife. You know, being a mom and dad, you know, can easily take precedence over being a husband or being a wife because, you know, once kids come into the picture, it's a natural inclination to focus in on the children. And I remember um, years ago before we had kids that, you know, my wife and I went out to dinner with the pastor and his wife here uh, in the city. And he said something that at the time I, you know, really didn't, I couldn't wrap my head around it because in that point of our marriage, you know, my wife and I were not really discussing you know, having children. We knew we wanted to have kids at that time. We were just enjoying, you know, the idea of it just being the two of us. But he said this, he made the statement about, you know, in marriage, what usually happens is when kids come along, the wife and the husband immediately shift their focus away from each other and onto their kids. And that's not how it should be. Um, He said that the focus should still remain on, you know, each other. The husband and the wife should should continue to 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 focus on each other. The wife should continue to focus on her husband and work to find balance on, you know, focusing, like shifting some of that attention and learning how to like mastering the art of dividing that attention you know, between your your spouse and your children so that there isn't an area of lack because the point he was making is it's very easy for a mom to get, uh, you know, a wife to get caught up in motherhood and not really, you know, you know, start to lose sight of how she should be tending to her husband. You know, likewise, you know, he made the point that it's very easy for a father, uh, a husband to get focused on fatherhood and lose sight of the, you know, the, the duties that he should be devoting to, you know, his wife. And, it, you know, like I said, at the time, that really didn't click in my mind. But, you know, as we had kids, I started to, you know, that that came back to my mind because I started seeing some of those patterns within my marriage where both myself and my wife were starting to lean towards, you know, the focus shifting to, well, it's all about the kids. It's all about the kids. And, you know, our marriage didn't suffer. Like we, we weren't lacking, but the, the, it was just different. There was a difference. It was a notable difference. And, you know, we had a conversation and, you know, it was there was never any any strife or any division. It was just, you know, we did a self check and we came to the realization like, you know what? Yeah, we, we are we are doing this. And it wasn't negative. It wasn't, you know, the, the conversation wasn't born out of any, you know, sh- like I said, there was no there was no drama 
that helped us come to this realization. It was just two mature adults who love each other. You know, we we were mature enough to make the distinction and following that realization, we made the proper adjustments. And I think that's important in marriage, excuse me, in, in relationships, you know, especially marriage, that when you're mature enough to recognize when there is a deficit in any order or in any area that you can come together and shift and make the proper adjustments to kind of, you know, shore up where the area is lacking. And that's what we did. And, you know, I think it's, it, it, it has helped us to maintain a healthy marriage. You know, we have had a healthy marriage over a span of 12 years of being together, you know, being married. And, you know, it's, it's not perfect. I mean, there's no such thing as a perfect marriage. There's no such thing as a perfect husband or a perfect wife. We don't try to be perfect. We just try to be everything we can for each other. And we meet in the middle and, you know, with God in the center, you know, he, he kind of pulls it together to help us be what we need to be for each other and more. Um, so, you know, I'm, I'm particularly still happy to be married. I'm still glad to be in a marriage to somebody that is my best friend to somebody that I love that, you know, I, I tell my friends that are single that I really feel sorry for them because I can't fathom being single in 2021. Um, it just is frightening to me. The idea of being single today is, is extremely frightening to me because the mindset of, you know, the women in this country, you know, and I'm only speaking because I'm not speaking for how women view, you know, single women view single men in this country or in this society, not just in, in America, but just society at large. I'm speaking from a perspective of what I see due in large part to the advent of social media. You know, social media was just starting when my wife and I, um, you know, when, when we met, you know, my wife and I, we met on MySpace and, you know, we are, we are a MySpace marriage. We met on MySpace, we started dating and the rest is history. You know, we dated for a year and a half and before we got married. And so, you know, I know that social media has this place for being the, the new after hour, so to speak, place to kind of meet you know meet people that you're interested in you know um when i was you know single there were dating sites like match.com was really big that was like the new thing and now you have you know i don't know how many there are i know there are a lot out there i just know about tinder because i've heard you know about it on on tv um but I can't like we didn't, you know, social media was not a factor. You know, it didn't shape the relationship that we had, you know, to the degree that I can see that it shapes marriages and relationships now. I listened to a um, another podcast. It was a it was a, a radio lab 
uh, episode. It was a few years ago. And um, it wasn't Radio Lab. I'm sorry. It was another. Um, this lady who she doesn't do podcasts anymore. At least I don't see them. But it was. And I can't think of the name. So I apologize. But anyway, this lady did a podcast. And she had a marriage and relationship counselor that she was interviewing. And this was about four years ago um, that I listened to this podcast episode. And this lady was talking about how um, as a marriage and relationship counselor, one of the things that she's one, one of the things that she's starting to to see emerge as a normal reason for divorce is you know social media is at the root and what she what she said was she'll have a couple that wants to get divorced but not because they don't love each other or they're not happy with each other but because of what their perception of other people on social media is they feel like they could possibly be happier if they were with someone else and I thought that was really really deep um, on so many levels, you know, and I started looking at the fact, you know, internally in my own marriage, like how could I look at my wife who I love and I'm extremely happy with, and she makes me happy, but because I spend, you know, X amount of time on social media, I'm looking at other women and being like, man, me and her would probably be good together. I could probably be happier than I am with her. You know, somebody that I don't know, somebody that I don't have any time invested in, you know, I will be leaving my a marriage to start from scratch to go into to basically the unknown. And people are doing that. It's becoming normal for people to leave their marriages based off of a perception, an idea uh, that is, you know, rooted in their minds based off of something they saw on somebody's Instagram page or somebody's Facebook post or whatever, whatever social media you, you know, avenue that is, you know, your, you know, weapon of choice as it were. And it says a lot about our society. It says a lot about the influence that social media has on us as a culture. And to me, I thought it was like extremely troubling. Um, to know that there are people who, you know, have these mindsets and that are abandoning good marriages to good people that they love and that they have time invested in just off of an idea. And, you know, to be fair, and, 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 and she even made the statement that these are, these are mutual determinations that couples are making together. Like they're determining together, like, you know what? I do love you. And we are happy. We got a good thing. But I just think we could be happier if while, you know, and throw out whatever reason. And I just I really feel like that social media is. It's, you know, it has its place. Uh, if it if you know how to use it with with wisdom, if you can use it wisely, it has its place. And if you don't allow it to, you know shape your every thought and every move you make based off of what social media might think. And I think that we we really have given too much energy 
to social media. And I don't think I really don't think there's any going back. You know, there's no way for us to dial it back. You know, it's changed everything about dating. Like now it's popular to be in, you know, the, 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 the effective mode for communication and, you know, breaking the ice with the young lady is to go on her DMs and hope that she'll respond. And then, it, you know, there's all this conversation between, you know, guys and girls are, you know, having all of their conversations in DMs and by text message. And it just was, it's just not the same. And for those reasons, I just, I just don't like, you know, I'm a big communicator. I like conversation. I, li- I like to talk. I like to engage people, you know, one-on-one in crowds directly. Um, and I just think about how like nowadays, you know, young guys who are trying to date, you know, you got, you know, these high school guys, uh, 15, 16, 17 years old. They don't know how to talk to women. They don't know how to talk to girls that they're interested in. And likewise, these young women within the same age range, they don't know how to receive um, what men that are. They don't know how to pick up cues that men are throwing down because of social media. And then, you know, that can be a dangerous ground for. You know, you saw, you know, the influx of the Me Too movement a couple years ago where, you know, everything, you know, just about anything that you could say to a woman could be could be misconstrued or taken as some type of unwanted advance or unwanted, you know, just people just not knowing how to take cues like when I was a kid when I was in high school and in college if I was flirting with a young lady she knew that you know right away that you know if she was interested and she would flirt back if she wasn't that was enough for me to be hands off like okay so she's not she's not picking up what I'm putting down so you know move on to the next and I think that has gotten lost and, you know, those lines of communication have become extremely blurred because of social media. You know, um, the conversations in by text message, you know, they don't include emotion. You know, there's no context. You can't hear, you know, what you know, where people are coming from through a text. And that's why, you know, sometimes text messages can really be triggering. And so. I think about all of that when you, you know, you think about dating out there, you know, women these days. And again, I'm just speaking about my perspective. Were I a single man? And from what I have seen, you know, what single women prioritize based on social media, the personas that they put forth, the values that they espouse, the ideas that, you know, they champion um through their social media what's important to them and a lot of we a lot of these women you know when when if i don't know you but i know your persona then i'm free to make assumptions about who you are until i get to know you and so 
um it just to me it's just you know i don't think that you know and i think this is why people like kevin samuels have <laughs> have become so important in this day and age um so shout out to kevin samuels i know he's not popular uh i understand why he's not popular and i appreciate what he's doing uh he's doing journeyman's work for single single people out here and i told my wife the other day my wife and i both listen to kevin samuels um stuff on youtube we watch his videos and what i what i said to her is i said you know what i figured it out i said kevin samuels is a friend to every guy that's been friend zoned and you know the reason for you know all of these good guys good quality men that have been put in the friend zone by women that they're attracted to for you know whether whether it's you know they're not making three or four hundred thousand dollars a year uh to support you know their shopping habits or their social media needs or you know the the ideas and the and the uh images that they want to make people believe that you know their life is so great on you know to help them keep up keep up appearances or maybe it's because you know somebody has a good job and makes good income but he's not that attractive you know he's got all the qualities of somebody that they want to be in a relationship but I'm just not physically attracted to him and so they get friend zone for whatever reason and and Kevin Samuels has done uh exemplary work in exposing why these men get friend zone and why so many women complain about being single and saying that there are no good men out there um and so it's just you know I I think I see I see things on social media I hear stories from my friends that are single I see stories on you know on social media of you know struggles that single men have when it comes to dating and I find myself constantly saying, Lord, I thank you for my wife. I thank God for my wife. I thank God that I don't have to deal with this. I don't have to. I don't I just don't have to deal with it because it's not worth it. It's, it's just not worth it. And um, it's frightening, man. I mean, to especially when I, you know, have children. I mean, it, I just I, I don't I don't know. I really I'm really just thankful for my for my marriage and I honor my wife. I honor the the commitment that we made to each other uh and it's precious to me. And you know not just because I have a fear of being single or a fear of being without her. It's because it's not even in my peer view. It's not even in my peer view to imagine life without her. So you know, when I see stories on online or if I hear, you know, if I'm having a conversation with a friend of mine that's single and he's, you know, laying out his dating woes. When I hear that stuff, I'm just like, God, man, I'm so glad I don't have to deal with that. I'm so thankful that that's not my issue. It's not my testimony. Like, man, you're going to have to figure that out. I don't know what to tell you, but. I think that having a son and having a daughter, the the best thing that I can do is make sure that my son understands that there is a way to speak to women. 
is a way to talk to women and engage the opposite sex. Likewise, it's up to me to make sure that my daughter understands there is a way to receive those communications and learn how to process them from the opposite sex so you don't get misconstrued or don't get mixed signals. And there's clarity and understanding what both parties are looking for intentionally. And so, you know, I think that, you know, Social media has basically destroyed what dating is about. You know, you get, you hear stories about people that go on a date, a guy and a girl, they meet, they get in the DMs, they have conversation for a few days back in the DMs. You know, they talk on the phone a couple times, they make their plans in the DMs, they, they, you know, they make a date, they introduce themselves, you know, they make plans to meet up all over the course of not having had a physical conversation with each other they have just been communicating via text and i've even heard stories where you know the first time the first conversation we had was right before our date she gave me her number and i called her and you know confirmed where we were going to meet up and we met up at the restaurant or wherever they went to go do and then they get there and they're on their phones the whole time um because they really don't know how to talk to each other. They really don't know how to ask questions or make inquiries or, you know, and I'm not saying that this this is every situation. It's not I'm not saying that it's all doom and gloom, but I I in my opinion by and large it's hard out in these single streets. And that's why I'm glad to be over in these marriage streets. So, um I don't want single people who may hear this to feel hopeless. Uh, I just think that they have to find methods uh, to be successful uh, for dating. And they're out there. I mean, and I think the biggest thing is to be patient. You know, um, a friend of mine asked me recently, like, at what point did I know that I wanted to marry my wife? At what point did I know that she was the one? And, you know, when I shared the story with him about... Um, you know what that moment was you know he was just like wow man and 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 you know i have i have intentions to you know one one of these episodes i want to bring my wife on and and have her as a guest so that she and i can have some discussion and just be transparent about you know our marriage and you know how we feel about each other and some of the things that we would share and advice that we would give um but when you know you know and you realize that you don't want to live without this person. You, you're not willing to consider what the alternative is, which could be a life of either, you know, prolonging a single life or even, you know, just you just don't want to think about that. And, you know, there were there were specific events that happened that showed me without a doubt that. I made the right choice in, you know, my marriage. And so, you know, I'm happy about that. I'm happy about my situation. Um, and I think I know for a fact that it's possible. You know, I know for a fact that it's possible. Um, my cousin, who's much younger than me, we just went to Detroit this past July to go to his wedding reception. Him and his wife, they met. I'm not sure how they met. I have to ask him. Uh, how they met but 
I they met, they're young, and they're in love. You know what I mean? And they got a good thing going. They were together for a while before they got married. So they pretty much know it works for them. And so um, it is possible. It is possible to find the right person to be in a relationship with. But you have to be willing to be patient, I think. I think that's a problem, which is another symptom of the social media sickness is we don't have patience. We don't have enough patience to wait for what we want because we have gotten accustomed to being such a right now society. You know, that, you know, it's Instagram, Insta from the word instant. You know, we communicate, we're communicating instantly. You send a message and somebody can see it right away. It pops up on their phone, a notification, and they have in, they're instantly notified that somebody's interested in them. So we have this, these interests out here that, you know, people, you know, don't necessarily take the time to flesh out. And I just think that, you know, social media is just not, it's not that great uh, when it comes to dating. You know, it can, it can cause a lot of problems. I think I remember reading, um, this was about six years ago, six or seven years ago, I was reading something, I was reading an article and they were talking about um, when it comes to legal proceedings where divorce is concerned and the grievances that are put forth in why the divorce is being called for, Facebook social Facebook interactions on social media are listed among the reasons. So it'll be, you know, the money's not right. Um, you know, and plus, you know, you spending too much time on Facebook, you know, it gives you too much access to, you know, the opposite sex. And I'm like, wow. So Facebook is becoming a reason to why people are getting divorced. And I'm sure that, you know, there are numbers of people that are out there that are getting married. I hear about, you know, Facebook marriages, Instagram marriages all the time. So I know that there are happy endings happening um, because of social media, because of couples that have met and have fostered successful relationships that have turned into successful marriages because of social media. So it's not all bad. There is some good. But I think by and large, that good gets overshadowed by the negativity that comes along with the images that are portrayed on social media from both single men and single women. Um, and so, you know, I really just wanted to take some time today to, you know, take stock of my own personal journey, my own marriage and to be transparent and just, you know, looking at the society and, 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 and the shape that it's in today, you know, for, I have a sister that's young, my youngest sister, she's single, she's in her mid thirties. And, you know, she's talking to me about, you know, her issues being single, um, in the men that she she's meeting that just aren't you know it's just they're not what she's looking for and so and a lot of it could be you know a lot of people are picky people are looking for certain things um there are certain concessions that they're not willing to make when it comes to their mate uh and that's perfectly fine 
I think everybody should have in every situation you go to, especially a marriage or, or, or a serious long term relationship, you know, with someone that you're attracted to. I think that everyone should have a list of concessions that they're willing to make. Like these are the things, these are the areas where I'm willing to be flexible along with the areas where no, there's, there's no flexibility here. These are requirements. These are, these are deal breakers. If we can't have, if I can't have this, this, and this, then, you know, it's no point in us having, you know, going any further, you know, I had to come to a place in my life at the end of my 30s. I was like 26, 27 years old. I started looking at the fact that, you know what, I'm going to be 30 soon. It's time for me to start settling down, stop ripping and running the streets and trying to date and, you know, just abandon all of this casual dating and get serious because I knew and I've always known that I wanted to be married. I wanted to have a marriage. I wanted to be a husband, a father. I knew that was a goal and I knew that I had to work towards that goal. So when I got into, you know, my late 20s, you know, I went through a period at the end where I was dating. I was going out on dates with women and I was telling them outright, like, listen, you know, I'm looking for a wife. And if that's not what you're into, then let's not waste each other's time. You know, yes, I like you. Yes, I'm attracted to you, but I'm not just looking to casually date. You know, I'm just not looking for that. I'm at a point now where I'm past that. And there were a lot of um, potential relationships that I passed over because I was willing to be honest up front. I was mature enough to be honest in what I wanted up front and saying, you know, what my goals were. And it was a way for me to weed out um, these young women that I was, you know, that I was seeing that weren't looking for the same thing that I was and that were going to ultimately waste my time and have me waste their time. And I looked at it like as I'm getting older, I don't have time to waste. I don't have time to waste for this. You know, I'm just not going to do it. And so um, I think that's, you know, you have to have some hard uh, ask yourself some hard questions and be willing to accept what those hard answers are. And so um that's what led me to, you know, when I started dating my wife, she wasn't scared off by that. When I told her I was looking for a wife, I wasn't looking to date casually, long term, and that didn't scare her off. And so we continued on and the rest is history. So, you know, there is hope. You know, I think there's a great, I'm, I, you know, I'm, I think there's a great pool of people out there that can make great couples i know there's some great women out there because listen by logic if if i know some some good quality single men that are ready to devote themselves to a single woman then if i believe that then i have to believe that there are some great single women out there that are ready to devote themselves to these quality men that are out there you know so you know, there's always room. There's always, you know, hope. You just have to put yourselves in the right situation. You have to be willing to try something different. Uh, I remember I gave some advice to a coworker. <laughs> this was years ago. And uh, she was telling me about how, you know, she had been divorced. She was talking to me about how she was having all of these problems with the men that she was dating. 
And I told her, I said, you know what? You should try something different. I said, why don't you try dating a white guy? Have you ever dated interracially? She said, no. I said, you should try it. You know, and I'm, I'm, I think that that's something that people are afraid to consider. Um, but, you know, if your soulmate is wrapped up in an ethnic group that's different than yours, is it worth the risk? Is it worth taking the chance? And I think it where where love is concerned, I think it is. You know, I, I don't think there's anything more honorable than taking a chance uh, for something like love uh, and the potential for a fulfilling relationship. So I gave her that advice. I'm not sure if she took it or not. Um, but that's the advice I was, you know, people got to be willing to try something different. You have to be willing. If maybe it means you have to move somewhere, move away from where you are. Maybe the men in the city you live in just aren't what you're looking for. Maybe you need to relocate. Uh, and then, you know, my grandfather used to say, uh, how bad is your want to whenever, um, you know, my mom would tell me that when, when she wanted something as a kid and she really, really wanted it, you know, my grandfather would say, well, how bad is your want to? Meaning, what are you willing to do to get what you want? What, you know, <laughs> what are you willing to stake, you know, to get what you want? So those are questions you have to ask. I think we need to get away from depending on social media so much to shape the decisions that we make. I think it, it plays its part. But again, when you can, when you know how to use it wisely and not let it uh, determine every decision that you make, which way, you know, how you feel, your emotions, you know, you have to know all of those things. When you can find that and you can determine that, I think you'll be in a good position um, to, to meet the right person and have a successful marriage and have a long marriage. So, you know, I want to say again, salute to my wife, uh, salute to all the married couples out there that are happy that are putting the work in to make their marriages work for each other and for their families. Um, you're an inspiration to me. I have several families, uh, you know, I have several men in my life who are married and have successful marriage that I look at them and say, yep, it's possible. And to be honest, that starts with my mother and father. My mother and father just celebrated 44 years of marriage. And, you know, they're still happy. They still love each other. Do they get on each other's nerves 44 years later? Absolutely, yes. But they can't imagine life without one another. And so that comes from time in. So, you know, find people who are in positions that you want to be in and ask questions. You know, I have friends that haven't been married as long. I have friends that are just celebrating their one year anniversary, their two year anniversary, and they're excited about their marriages still. So, you know, there are some great stories out there and uh, it is possible. So on that note, I'll end it here. Um, you can send an email to uncommon sense with KT at gmail.com. You know, Tell me what your marriage is like. Tell me what your relationship status is like. I'm not on here trying to be a relationship counselor, but since we talked about this today, I'd be interested in your feedback if you care to share it. Um, in the meantime, be safe where you are and God bless.
What's up, everybody? Welcome to another episode of Uncommon Sense. I'm your host, Kevin Tony, And today we got a, a, a really good show. This is something different. This is something new for the podcast. We have our first guest that's joining us today. And this is a brother that I've known for um, several years. He is a jack of all trades, a master of quite a few of them. Uh, <laughs> my good brother, uh, Montice Peterson, is joining us today. What's going on, man? Not much, man. How are you doing today? I'm doing great, man. Uh, you are the, uh, <laughs> I call you the, the, the martial arts expert slash uh, magician uh, who gets it, who gets it done. So, um, yeah, so we, 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 uh, this, this conversation has been, uh, in the making for quite a while and I'm glad that we're getting a chance to do it now. Um, and we're gonna, uh, we're gonna dive into an area that, um, I know that, you know, I consider you to be, um, somewhat of a subject matter expert. Um, in, in terms of, you know, these areas. And that's why I wanted to have you on. We're going to be discussing the um, the religion, uh, if you want to call it that, but we're going to be talking about uh, Hebrew Israelites today and Hebrew Israelism and what it entails. And the reason that I wanted to have this conversation is because I'm seeing a lot of people that I know who are starting to get into this religion and I'm not really, you know, I'm saying religion, but I'm, I'm, you know, I, I, you know, I'm using that that word because I'm not exactly sure exactly what it is. It's a doctrine, this mindset, this way of thinking, and because I'm starting to see a lot of my friends that are getting into it, I want to have a better understanding of it uh, when I have conversations with them. I mean, to to be honest, I'll, I'll come out the gate and. And, and say from what I've seen, it's not really something that I necessarily believe in. Uh, but I want to have you come in and um, you know just kind of dispel some myths or you know give some reasons behind why people you know why has gained popularity within the last several years, most notably in uh, in the black community uh, for the most part. So right. Um, yeah, I'll let you. Uh, I'll let you take it away, man. You can give a brief history, and and um, and then we'll we'll jump right in. All right, yeah, no problem, man. Thanks for having me. And um, yeah, this it's an interesting topic because they've been around for quite a while, actually since the late 1800s, and mm-hmm. their popularity kind of waned, and there was a resurgence um, again in like the 60s or so, 60s and 70s, and okay. Then it waned again, and then it's had a, another resurgence. Um, and basically, from a historical perspective, um, their origins began, like I said, early 1800s. A gentleman named Frank Cherry and William Crowdy, uh, they believed that God had told them uh, that the African Americans were descendants of the Hebrews in the Christian Bible. Okay. And uh, God told them this. And my thing is always a couple red flags. When you have people to say, who say things like God told me or mm-hmm. they have new revelation outside of Scripture, 
those are automatic red flags. Okay. Okay, any revelation coming outside of Scripture or God revealing new revelations to people that just go against what we would call orthodox uh, Christianity or orthodox beliefs, usually red flags should be raised. Um, and this goes with most cults. You'll see that to be consistent. Um, okay. So early on, the reason they kind of, the inception of the, the and, and I do call it a religion, and I know you're uh, wondering if you should refer to it as a religion or not. And mm-hmm. I, I do because uh, religion simply defined is basically a set of beliefs or a system of worship. Right. So in that loose definition, we can have a religion that worships the trees and the squirrels. That's true. Okay. So, you know, it's, it's a belief in a worship of anything that we feel is supernatural or a controlling power of, of any sort. So we can loosely use the definition. So with this particular religion, um, they early on, it, the inception happened because you had slaves. Right. Who were working plantations, and the only thing that they had that they could hold on to for hope was the story of uh, Moses and the Hebrew Israelites and how God rescued them and saved them. And they related to the story for obvious reasons because they wanted to be rescued and saved and delivered from uh, their enslavement the same way the uh, Hebrew Israelites did in in Exodus. So Mm -hmm. this is where this started. Um, And if we know anything, for example, like about Harriet Tubman, she was referred to as the Black Moses. Right. Right? And But this goes back to the same thing I'm saying, that they wanted Moses to rescue them, to get them away from their captives. Um, so it started there. So they began to identify spiritually with the Israelites, and at some point they simply just said, hey, that's actually us. Okay. And okay. so they, I, I like to call it... <laughs> uh one of the, the one of the first uh um identity thefts in history one of the biggest identity thefts because it really they just kind of say hey that's us we're them that that's who we are and again i understand let me say this i understand it came from a, a hurt place right it came from a place of you know once these slaves were free and 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 i mean it's an authenticity to people who are involved with this in America, black people in America, we're the only people who really don't have a true historical culture. So if you look at, for example, Latinos, they, they know their name, they know their history, or Asian Americans, or uh, Indian Americans, or, or East Indian Americans. I don't care who you talk to, if their ancestors are from Germany. Because of the slave trade, uh, most of the black people in this country right now trace their ancestry back to a plantation. Right. And, and, and so, is that because, so you have the popularity, the rise in popularity recently in, you know, websites like Ancestry.com or 23andMe where people, you know, a lot of my black, uh, a lot of my friends have tried to use that website to try to trace back to see where they come from to figure out who they are uh, in their mm-hmm. family lines because they don't know. Right. No, absolutely. And and you have these uh, DNA testing that you can do, and they'll tell you, 
you know, what part of the world that your DNA is from, uh, but we still have no connection to it culturally. Right. And and so most people in this country, if they're Irish or what have you, they have some sort of cultural connection to ancestry. We don't. Even our last right. name, because I remember I traced my last name. It was back to a plantation somewhere. And so, you know, in an effort to have an identity and have a culture, they simply, they simply just took on the Rizzoite culture, and they took their history. And they claim it as their own history. But see, and I understand it because the need to have identity, the need to know where you, you come from, the need to have a culture is really what led and, and drove them to this place. And they simply just identity theft. We're going to steal their culture and their history and say it was ours. And that's really the inception of it in, in a simplified explanation. Okay. Okay. And that makes sense. And that makes sense. So just to, just to fast forward to um let's let's go back about 3 or 4 years ago and I, and I'm I'm using this time frame because this is when you had the uh you had the the incident uh in Covington um uh, where they had the, the the protest and uh you know there was the kid on TV um and then there was the Hebrew Israelites the black Hebrew Israelites that got in his face they were uh, I don't know if you remember that, but that was a big deal in the news um, several years back. And I think that was one of the first instances from a, a national perspective to where black Hebrew, is, Hebrew Israelites had a national spotlight because that story about, you know, the kid who was wearing the MAGA hat at the rally and, you know, there was a Native American that was getting in his face and then the black Hebrew Israelites were in his face. And it was, you know, these these groups were on display, and then it was all these questions about, well, you know, well, who are the black Hebrew Israelites? I mean, most people in our community were familiar with it, but, you know, by and large, you know, that was the first time that I can think of where they had, like, okay, well, CNN's talking about this group, MSNBC, all of these mainstream Fox News, they're all covering, you know, and mentioning this group, but America is probably like, you know, who are they? Like, who are these people? You know what I mean? So that explanation that you just gave is kind of really, you know, a good introduction to give people an idea of the historical uh, background of the why uh, of where, you know, of its inception and why uh, why um, it started. Um, as opposed to how it's gained popularity now, and I and I appreciate you talking about the off again, on again resurgences that it's had over the last few hundred years, uh, and so to now see where it's really kind of caught fire um, to the degree that you know a lot of people that I know are starting to ascribe to it, and so. Um, you mentioned that a lot of it is born out of hurt. Can you talk about that a little bit more? Well, yeah. So, like I said, when you when you get to uh, slavery and and the whole uh, history of slavery, and once they were freed, what we see is that you had these uh, African Americans, and uh, they again they had no history of their own no no culture to really hold on to so for them basically appropriating jewish history 
uh, I guess we could say it was a part of, of a rebellion against an American radical hierarchy that deemed Africans inferior. Okay. So for them, you know, they were deemed inferior. So you know what? We just won't be Africans. We're going to be Hebrew Israelites. And uh, those are our origins, and we'll regain um, uh, regain our culture and history through basically copying this one. Okay. And because most Hebrew Israelites do not, no, no, let me take that back, not most, all of them, they do not, and this is really interesting, they do not consider themselves um, ancestors of Africans or, or of, of any African nation. Um, really? As black people, they do not. They believe that they are um, Hebrew Israelites and they are not African. And for them, um, it, and I've heard them say this, it's insulting to even suggest it. It's like saying that all Asian people are Chinese or all Asian okay. people are Korean. And they're like, no, just because our skin's black and we're here, we're not Africans. Okay. And so, and so, yeah, go, I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, that's, that's interesting um, to hear that because, and I've seen, like, just in some commentary, you see certain things on social media where uh, they make the distinction between being Hebrew and being black. And I never kind of understood that until you just broke that down. So I'll let you continue. Go ahead. Yep. No, absolutely. So um, they believe that they are descendants of the biblical patriarchy, uh, patriarchy I'm sorry, of uh, Jacob. And okay. that, yeah, that's what they believe. And they believe that modern day Jews are simply a combination of Europeans and, and, and they speak Yiddish and it's not really real, uh, real Hebrew and that they are actually imposters. And so, and, and believing this, um, they, like, for example, we look at the Egyptians, Canaanites, Ethiopians, Babylonians, they were all black-skinned people or dark-skinned people. They do not believe that they're descendants of any of these people. And, um, again, they would say something like, it's like saying that all Asians are Chinese or all Europeans are French. And so mm. they do not subscribe to that. Uh, they definitely separate themselves. And, again, this can be traced back to um, a time when, African-Americans in this country were deemed inferior, and they wanted to separate themselves from um, from that, that label, that view of being inferior. So we're just not Africans. We're not a part of that. And that's, right. you know, where that comes from. Okay. So, so um, and, I, and I'm starting to see the popularity, you know, gained particularly within you know, my age group and younger. And I'm I'm forty two. A lot of my friends are in their mid to um early forties, late thirties, and they're trying they're starting to really kinda get into it. And I've taken it you know, from, from what I've seen on the outside looking in, it's kind of a, a an awakening that they're having. You know, they're getting this new information that they didn't have before. And these are all people that I know, you know, or, you know, that I know of 
that have grown up in church, they've had church experiences and you know, it's it's just almost like they're they're doing a complete one eighty away from, you know, what what the foundation that they've grown up on. And like why you know, tell me if that's something that you've seen and, and, and why you think that, that you know, that's a like a baseline reason for people making the jump to Hebrew Israelism. Wow. So that that's okay. So there there's a lot to unpack there. Oh, boy. Okay. So number one, I, I would contend with the fact that they were raised up with a Christian foundation. Mm-hmm. I say that because, and, and as a Christian, I have these conversations with my friends all the time, and this is a very sad commentary. Just because people go to church does not mean that they are Christians or, or, or saved or saved. Um, there are people who have learned to do church. Yeah, that's right. They, they know the jargon. They know what to say. They know when to rock and sway, and they know when to say amen, and they know when the pastor says God is good, and they know when to, they know how to say all the time. They've been churched, and they've learned mm-hmm. how to be churched. Right. Um, however, foundationally, I don't think it has ever taken root, Right. And, and right. Jesus talked about this and, and uh, where he talks about the store of the seed. And there's some seeds that take root, and there's some that just fall on the wayside. Some right. are scorched by the sun, and some are in the rocky places, and some get soaked by the, the, the weeds and the, the thorns. So most people in church, when we look at that, are just churched. So exactly. if, we, if we take, for example, Jesus mentioned Four situations there. Out of the four, only one took root in that parable of the seed. So if we just break that down, I'm just doing this kind of loosely here. Out of four, only one. That would be 25%. Right. Right, fourth, a fourth. So that would mean the other 75% that heard the word, it never took root. Mm-hmm. So yep. when we talk about people in church, their foundation, most of them don't have a real true, what I would consider foundation. Um, and so what happens is when these things come, uh, Hebrew Israelites, Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormons, um, I, I know people who are really involved in heavily in Afrocentric type uh, religious beliefs. Um, one of my friends is an Ifa priest. And when we see you this, even in, you can include the nation of Islam in that too. To a degree, we can. To a degree, yeah. we can. Yes, yes. So what happens here is because, and this is going to be a sad commentary here. This is a, a conversation for an entirely different day. Mm-hmm. Because the church has failed to really give a true foundation. It's right. very easy for cults to come in and pull these people away. Okay? I agree with that. So, and, and especially when we are dealing with issues of, of pride and culture and history. Um, and I say this a lot to unpack because now this opens up another door of right. something that I recently taught on. I was at a conference in Illinois and I recently taught on this subject. And that is Christianity being a white man's religion. Mm-hmm. When you start getting into those aspects of Christianity, 
and you're bringing in pride and culture, um, you have now a group of, of, of black people who are in Christian churches leaving because of cultural reasons or not accepting Christianity because of cultural reasons. Um, they feel as though they are betraying their ancestors because Christianity was used to enslave black people. It was used to control them. Um, and and these, this is a true statement. These are all true historical facts. It was right. used to control them. It was used to enslave them. They were uh, made to abandon their religious beliefs and accept their slave master's beliefs. So right. in doing so, and that's a whole other topic because, again, the slave masters tainted the scriptures. They changed it. Yes. You even have what we call a slave Bible. Most people don't even know about the slave Bible, which right. took out like 70% of scripture where it dealt anything that dealt with rebellion, uprising, freedom, God rescuing, uh, you know, we're all equal in God's eyes, you know. They took all that out, okay? So there's, there's, right. no slave, no, there's no slave, no free. I mean, no, uh, I'm sorry, uh, no slave, no masters. And all those scriptures are wiped out. So wow. they misused Christianity to enslave them. But with that being said, you have a lot of young black people who feel, I am betraying my ancestors if I take on the religion of the people who enslaved them. So, again, that's a subject for another day. But right. with that being said, you have a lot of young black people in churches who are being presented with this kind of information, and because they don't have a strong church foundation, they're easily per, uh, persuaded to leave Christianity and join groups like um, Black Hebrews Alliance or Nation of Islam or groups like that. Right. Okay. So so let's let's go this way because I, I what you're saying is. I'm very familiar with and just in passing I've seen you know the 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 commentary from you know people that I know that they just you know it's a lot of resentment that comes out of uh some of the reasons why they make the jump and uh I've even had you know some tell me you know they didn't want us to know in church they didn't teach us this because they didn't want us to know the truth you know, as if the church they came out of knew the truth to begin with, because like you said, that not having a foundational uh, base in the word, uh, you know, being in that 75% that didn't, you know, where the word didn't take root, that's heavy when you think about the difference in who gets it and who doesn't. And the majority of people that don't get it, how easily swayed they are. So let's just say that, um, for the for the the sake of the uh, of the of the conversation that we're having today, uh, let's say that you and I meet your chance encounter and we strike up a conversation, and I say to you, uh, mm -hmm. "Yeah, I'm I'm thinking about joining the uh, this Hebrew Israelite uh, group in my neighborhood," uh, but you know I'm just still trying to check it out and see, you know, if it's right for me. Like what what information would you give me having an opportunity like that if you could have a conversation with somebody and say you know what or even somebody that's deep in it i mean if you have a conversation like how do you dispel uh, you know how do you i don't want to use the word uh 
the, the phrase come against them. But how do you dialogue with somebody that, you know, not in an effort to uh, to try to change their mind? Because what I've seen, I've had conversations with complete strangers in my DMs on Instagram, and just by the language that they're using, I can tell that they align with the Hebrew Israelite way of thinking. And they are, I mean, it's almost like they have scriptures ready to try to convince you and change your mind that what you know and what you're thinking is, is wrong and why you need to come over to what they believe and mm-hmm. come out of what, you know, I I had this guy, I didn't even know him, man. He kept calling me a slave in the DM. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and yep. it, 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 was, it was crazy, man. Like, I'm like, I don't even know this guy. And we're having this like super long conversation, and he like he he, he was saying stuff like, "Yeah, are you ready to come out of slavery and really open up the scriptures and stop being a slave and so on and so forth?" And I'm like, "Wow, like this guy is really he's for real." And mm-hmm. so so you you've seen this before, you know this dialogue. Like, how does one? How do you like? How would somebody stand against that or? go toe to toe and with in the conversation with somebody like that where they know like, you know what, I'm it just doesn't sound right to me. Like, you know, I don't and then we will eat until peel back the layer of, you know, how, you know, they, they the law is their baseline and the Torah and all of this stuff and that's what they and that's what they follow. Like how do you uh shape a conversation with somebody that's throwing information at you like that? Wow. Okay. That's a lot there. Uh, that you have is a lot. Okay. So it, so it depends on the conversation. So for example, if we are talking to someone in the first scenario that you gave me, you mentioned someone who was thinking about joining uh, Black right. Hebrews and you got to have a conversation with them versus someone who was in already understood the doctrine, and was now able to, to quote, quote scriptures, and they were, they were calling you a slave and all that kind of stuff. So those are two different conversations for me, mm-hmm. okay? So the first conversation uh, is going to be a little easier because they're not fully indoctrinated yet. Right. So you still have some room there. So when it comes to those people, I, and even the other ones too, but I'm going to give a little tip to people today here. There's a book called Tactics okay. by Greg Kukul. Okay. Okay. Tactics. Greg Kukul. He's an apologist. Okay. And he deals with um, how to talk to people or have biblical discussions with people. And in there... He gives three questions, and I always start with his three questions. Okay. Okay. And the first question is, what do you mean by X? Okay. So, for example, if they say, well, you're a slave, you say, well, what do you mean by a slave? Mm. Or if they say, I'm thinking about joining the Black Hebrew Israelites, well, what do you mean by joining? Right. So okay. the first question is always that, and the reason why, it'll give you more information on how to talk to them. Okay. Okay? The second question is, um, how did you come to that conclusion? Okay. 
So if you're a slave, what do you mean by slave? I say you're a slave because you're lost and you don't know who you truly are. And the, the white man got you tricked in thinking you don't, you know, that you're African, but you're really Hebrewite. Oh wow! How did you come to that conclusion? Mm-hmm. That's mm-hmm. the second question. Or I'm thinking about joining Hebrewites. I'm thinking about what do you mean by joining? Well, I want to become a member. And then you might throw a why in there, why? And they say, well, because it's the true religion and this and that. Okay, how did you come to that conclusion? So the first question is, what do you mean by X? Second question is, how did you come to that conclusion? Okay. Okay. Now, you could ask those two questions multiple times to make sure you get true answers from them. At that point, the, the third question is, Hmm. Well, have you ever considered? And then that's when you go into your spill. Right. Okay. Okay. But it's important because when I've used this, it's taught. It, it's it shows you the direction to go in when you are trying to witness to people. Because, for example, I'll get it's kind of off topic a little bit, but I've had people say to me, um, "There is no God." Mm-hmm. And I said, well, what do you mean by is no God? Well, he's not real. He doesn't exist. It's a, it's, he's fictitious. The whole Bible's a joke. How did you come to that conclusion? Right. And when I did this, I learned something important. Right? Mm-hmm. And the person said this to me. Well, because if God existed, he wouldn't have let my mother die when everybody was praying for her. So right. it's all a joke. It's a lie. So at this point, I knew I was not having an intellectual discussion. I was having an emotional discussion. And at that okay. point, I knew, I, I knew that this person was hurting. Right. And the last thing I needed to do is have intellectual discussion. We needed to have, I needed to minister to them. Right. So right. asking them questions will kind of lead you in how to talk to a person. And when you enlisting information, does that make sense? It does, yeah. That makes perfect sense. So so back to your original questions, when I do that with Hebrew Israelites, it 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 lets me see, first of all, how much they know and how much they don't know. How did you come back and cool? If they're able to break down scripture and go through it, okay, they're kind of well studied. I know how to approach them differently. If they're just mm-hmm. kind of haphazardly going about stuff, okay, they're newbies and they're right. rookies at this. And they don't know much. So I have a better chance of, of reaching them. Okay? Right. So I use those questions to get information. Now, the second thing I say here is this. I think I tell people this all the time. If you're really interested in witnessing to people who are in cults, be it Jehovah Witness, Mormons, uh, whoever we're talking about, Black Hebrew Israelites, you have to do your homework. Right. You have to do your homework. There's no way I can give you some witty thing to say that's going to just blow their mind. It's not going to happen. Okay? Right. Um, And, and, you know, as you said, I've I've been a martial art instructor most of my life, and that's like someone coming to me saying, hey, how do I defend myself against some big guy trying to bully me? Mm -hmm. There's no way I can give you one thing that's going to help you. That one thing is going to stop him from punching. Then he's going to pick you up, body slam you, and beat you up anyway. So right. my thing is, when it comes to having discussions with people who are in cults, they are well-versed. 
in their particular right. cult. I, when right. I say well-worn, and this is one of the failings of the church, and I'm sure churches won't like me saying this, but it's the truth, and I hope that they they hear the truth of what I'm saying and not take offense to it, but rather listen, pray about it. Churches mm-hmm. do a really bad job of discipleship. Yes, I would agree with that 100%. Okay, 100%. so they're, they're really good at here's a message, and you need to be saved, you need to repent from your sins, and and come down front and accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. They're really good at that. So if the if the message is good enough and it's emotional enough, a person will come down, accept Jesus Christ, and at that point they believe they're saved. Right. The problem is I have two issues with that. Again, we can have many discussions on this on different days. Mm-hmm. Um, I, don't, I don't particularly subscribe to when a person says words that they're told to say, that they're actually saved. Right. Uh, yeah. Words don't save you. It, uh, Paul talks about it's the belief in your heart. When you believe, when we see every instance in Scripture, when we go through the book of Acts, for example, the Ethiopian eunuch, what must I do to say? Believe Jesus Christ. Uh, what did uh, Paul, not Paul, I'm sorry, uh, uh, Peter say? You know, believe Jesus Christ. Repent. You know, every instance they had to believe. The, the salvation comes from your belief in your heart and truly accepting who he is, and then there's a confession with the mouth. Oftentimes we get the confession of the mouth without them really believing because they don't know who he is. Right. Yeah. So that, that, that's backwards. We're getting a confession before there's a heartfelt belief. So my thing is most of these call groups are really super good at discipling you. You will, even though their doctrine's all wrong, you will leave the kingdom hall fully understanding that doctrine. You'll fully understand it. You will leave black Hebrew Israelites' uh, teachings fully understanding what they believe, why they believe it, even if it's all wrong. Most, right. most people in church can't even tell you what they believe about being a Christian and why. So That's true. This is a sad commentary, but it's because there's a discipleship. There's no one discipling them. Um, usually, Israelites, Jehovah's Witnesses, they have mentors. Or Jehovah's Witnesses call them their Bible teachers, people who are assigned to them, who disciple mm-hmm. them. Okay? Yeah. So there's no discipleship. Um, and, and, and when we don't have discipleship, we have people who don't know what they believe. So it's easy people. to get them away. So my right. thing is, you before you talk to Hebrews and Lights, Jehovah Witness, about anything, you need to make sure you're clear on what you believe and why. Exactly. And that's what you're saying is an indictment on the church and that's again, we could that could be an a completely separate podcast episode to just yeah. you know, unpack that. Uh because, you know, I believe I, I, I totally agree with you because they come down, like you said, they when I grew up uh, church I grew up in, you know, somebody would get baptized, they would do the deal of beloved upon the confession of your faith, and it's like, okay, well, what confession? We didn't hear it, you know. Um, and and then, you know, they're baptized, and they're pretty much left to their own devices after that. It's like, all right, you're on your own, because we, we got to get ready for this next group that's coming in. And it's a it's almost like a, a conveyor belt. Uh really in a factory in terms of they're pushing out these 
quote unquote Christians, but like you said, there's nobody that's you know most churches. The church by and large is not pairing these new people with somebody that's individually going to to help them. And I learned a long time ago, like when Jehovah's Witnesses knock on your door, and it's always two of them. The one talking is the one in training. The one in silent is the one that's there to make sure they don't trip up and and, and lose their focus and you know, they're, they're just better to step in and, and fill in any gaps. Yeah, and, no, you're exactly right. Then that's the discipleship I'm talking about. Right, and and we don't have that. We don't have that. So, you know, I, um, I, I, I agree with you, and it's a, it really is sad to, to know that that happens. Uh, but, uh, you know, I'll let you c- continue. But I, I wanted to just interject that, that I, I told you're spot on with that observation of the lack of discipleship in, in church. And, and let me say this, too. You know, I'm saying that part in love because the mm-hmm. thing I don't want is people to get offended and then not take action to correct it. Right, um, right. Because that that is something that that should be and needs to be corrected, and all it will do is strengthen the church. Absolutely, we will be stronger for it. So you know, I hope people don't take offense, and rather they take that as an opportunity to uh, to strengthen the church. So now, with that being said, um, it, let's let's kind of go back a little bit because I do still want people to kind of understand a little bit more about Hebrew Israelites so, um, mm-hmm. as they're, they're understanding this. So um, just to give some historical, more historical context, I'm going to bring it forward here. Um, okay. They have, in the more modern uh, resurgence, uh, they had several leaders, a guy named Abba Bivens. Um, he was more in the 60s. And uh, I think he got murdered or something in 1970 or something. But he was pivotal, pivotal in shaping a lot of their theology today. Um, okay. There were people that he had with him, uh, Masha, Arya, and a guy named Yaakov. And these okay. gentlemen are important because if people really knew some of the history here, uh, Jacob claims that he was in a bar in the Midwest, and there was an angel, a black, he was a black man, an angel, with a perfectly round afro, who told him, confirmed, that yes, um, the blacks in America were actually the Hebrew Israelites. Okay. And then this black angel with the perfect afro walked out of the bar. He went after the guy to ask more questions, and he simply vanished. Um, that that's their story, and I, you know, I don't mean to make light of it, but sometimes I wonder was that was that a true vision or the Hennessy? I don't know. Right, but, exactly. Yeah, right. <laughs> I don't want to be mean, but but that's that was his claim. But I find it interesting because, like I said earlier, red flag. God told me, and receiving revelation outside of scripture. Well, this is another red flag because we have like Joseph Smith, who was uh, uh, the founder of the Mormons, claiming mm-hmm. that 
he had an angel appear to him right. and revealed to him that they were like a lost tribe of Israel here in America and led him to these gold tablets, which led to him writing uh, the book that he wrote, that I believe was the um, the Pearl of Great Price. Which book did he write? I can't remember. I'm really facing right now. But mm-hmm. uh, it led him to doing that. Uh, Benjamin Krim, who was the founder of the New Age movement, he claimed the angelic figure okay. appeared to him, which is why he began the New Age movement. Okay, mm-hmm. so you anytime you start hearing angels appearing to people um, and new revelation that no one else has but them that was given to them, uh, always a red flag goes up for me. Um, yeah. You made me think of you just made me think of Carl Pearson and inclusionism. <laughs> Same thing. I mean, yeah, so you can, you can, again, you can go down the line. Anytime people right. have angels appear to them and tell them stuff, it's interesting how they always tell them stuff that leads them away from Christianity, right? <laughs> into creating a cult. Okay, so that's interesting. So angels want you to form cult groups, and okay, so. But we see this a lot. We see this in Islam. And, and, and that's, again, another conversation the other day. I don't consider Islam a cult. Mm-hmm. Uh, some people try to do that, but I don't do that because I'm very strict in my definitions of things because I do apologetics. I speak at conferences. So I have to be really precise with my language. Right. Um, and so Islam is not a cult. They are just a false religion, and there's a difference. Um, okay. Uh, I don't know if we want to unpack that, but there's a difference. A, a just real, real quick. A, uh, as Christians, we have a set of beliefs that are our standard beliefs, or our foundational beliefs as Christians. When people right. within Christianity stray away from those orthodox beliefs, we call them a cult. So, right. for example, Jehovah Witness is teaching that uh, Jesus is a created a God. He's not God. He's not. He wasn't here from the beginning. He was created by God. Or Mormons teaching that Jesus and Satan are actually brothers. When you start doing things like that, you're a cult. When you're right. a completely different religion with your own Bible, your own theology. <clears throat> You, you haven't deviated from Christianity. You have your own religion. Uh, that is a cult. I mean, I mean, sorry, that is a false right. religion. Buddhism right. is a false religion. Hinduism is a false religion. They're not deviations from any other religion. They're their own religion. Right. Does that make sense? It makes sense, yeah. Thank you for making that distinction for the listeners. So, yeah, go on. Well, yeah, I just want to make sure because within Islam, for example, they consider um, Nation of Islam to be a cult yes. of their religion. So usually if you have an established religion and then people start deviating from it, that's when they start getting labeled as cults. But within the religion itself, to Christian, Islam is a false religion, mm-hmm. but not a cult. Does that make sense? Right. It makes sense. Okay. Yep. Okay. So, <clears throat> excuse me. So with that being said, um, black Hebrews like to me would be considered a cult because they are deviating from Christian theology and creating a theology within the Christian Bible. So this to me is when you are a cult. 
I, I would okay. agree. All right. So with that being said, the gentleman that I mentioned, uh, Abba Biven, uh, Masha, Arya, these guys um, had a particular theology that they were holding to. And they had a school in New York. And the school that they opened up in New York, I believe it was, um, oh boy, what was the address to that, that school? Um, uh, I believe it was 1 West 125th Street. Okay. Okay. And I say that because this is kind of relevant for people who really want to get into these guys. Uh, there's a theology that came out of that school, and they called it the one, they called them the One Westers. Ah, so if you, okay. Yeah, because it came out of One West 125th Street. So most of your popular uh, Hebrew Israelite groups today um, come from that theology. So they don't have what we would consider denominations. They call theirs camp. Okay, I got you. Yeah, okay. that makes sense. So, so when you see that they don't, they're not all the same, they don't agree with all their theology, it varies. It's no different from Christian denominations. Episcopalians being different from Pentecostals, being different from Baptists, being different from Methodists. Right. Okay? Right. That makes a lot of sense. So, yeah, I'll give you a couple of the popular ones. One is the GOCC, which is the Gathering of Christ Church. That is one of the the popular ones. Uh, Okay. You have the GMS, which is uh, Great Millstone Israelites. They are another popular, really, really popular group. Um. The HOD, the House of David. Um, you have the ISUTK, the uh, Israelite School of Universal Practical Knowledge. Okay? Oh, wow. And then, yes. Then you have the IUIC, Israelites United in Christ. They're probably one of the most recognizable ones. They usually have the purple and gold uh, right. type. Okay. And uh, Nathaniel is their leader. He's very vocal. Um, very charismatic, uh, very knowledgeable with regard to their belief system. Um, I've seen him debate a few Christians who should have never went on stage with him, and he destroyed them. Wow. Okay. Which, which tells me they weren't prepared for the battle. They they brought right. a knife. To, they didn't bring a knife to a gunfight. They brought a knife to a tank it's submarine uh, air force fight. Right. Okay. So in other words, it was a bloodbath. <laughs> it was a bloodbath because they got out there talking about being baptized in the Holy Ghost and this and that and other, and he ripped them a new one because he went up and down the scriptures, historical, the culture aspect, uh, the Hebrew. He was using Hebrew language, and these guys were sitting there like, uh, uh, huh? And it was embarrassing. So <laughs> it was man, embarrassing. Oh, but you had other leaders, uh, Aria, who debated um, James White, who was a leading apologist. He speaks Greek. He reads Greek. And when you got up against someone like that, he got embarrassed by James White. He should have never even had a conversation with James White. Mm-hmm. So this is leading me to a place here. I'm doing this on purpose. Okay. Yeah. Go ahead. Number one, to my original point. Do not attempt to talk to these people unless you are prepared because right. you will get destroyed. Um, and we didn't mention this on the call today, but I was raised Jehovah Witness um, until the Lord pulled me out of it. And 
as a Jehovah Witness, I used to bend people into pretzels who said they went to wow. church. Um, so you should not be talking to people unless you are, number one, truly rooted and understand your own beliefs. Number right. two, make sure you understand the person that you're going to talk to. Uh, you know, if if you look at football teams or, or boxers, they always watch film on their opponent to be prepared yes. for them. That's true. Okay? Yeah. You can't enter a battle not knowing who your enemy is. You'll get destroyed. And me being a martial artist, this is a principle from Sung Tzu. You know, uh, if you know your opponent, you know yourself, know your opponent, victory is assured, right? So that goes right. back to what we're saying. Know yourself. You should be rooted in your own religious beliefs. Then know your opponent. You should know what they believe. Then you'll be victorious. You're, you'll be destroyed if you walk in not knowing your opponent and not knowing yourself, okay? So right. with that being said, after James White destroyed this gentleman, Arya, there was a backlash from the Hebrew Israelites. Mm, I'm sure. They, they put up videos and they just berated James White. You're a white man. You have no business even reading the Bible. That was, that's our book. It wasn't even given to you. You have no reason touching it and opening the book. Um, wow. Then, as they were calling him all kind of white devils, and they were just, they said something in the anger that stood out to me like a sore thumb. And when I heard, I said, whoa, whoa, did he just say what I think he said? I rewound the video, and I watched it again, and I said, oh, my God, there is the key right there. And what he said was, like, you devil, you this, you that, and you don't need to touch that Bible. You think you know all of this. That Bible isn't for you. It's not your God anyway. And he said, you want to come with all this knowledge, all this information, all this wisdom and stuff you got? Where was all that when we was in the church, huh? Where was all of it then? Where was you at then? You such and such white devil. I said, whoa, whoa, whoa. Yeah, right. So he, he, he just said, huh? He tipped his hand. He tipped his hand. Yeah. But he tipped it in a way that is embarrassing for the church. Yes. Yeah. What he said in that statement, it stood out to me. Number one. They came from the church. Yep. Number two, he's saying, where was all that information and knowledge and teachings when we were there? You weren't, where were you then? In other words, what he's saying, no one ever taught us all the stuff that James White was saying. We never heard the stuff that this white man is now saying. So what are they really saying here? While they were in church, they didn't learn anything, that they weren't being wow. taught all this stuff. They were not being taught, which goes back to our original point, which is why I, I wanted to bring that home, because that brings us to the original point. There's not discipleship. There's not enough teaching, which is why they're being pulled away. Right. Man. Another indictment. <clears throat> indictment number well, two. And again, I don't <laughs> – so let me say this. I hesitate to use the word indictment, you know, because I hate to use that word, but maybe that's the right word. I don't know. But my thing is simply this, that I think as believers – well, let me, let me not say as believers. As people, life is about growth and change. 
Mm-hmm. And I think the church needs to grow and change and just do a better job at discipling. Uh, right. There's a lot of emotion, tickling emotions, tickling ears. Um, you know, I've heard people talk to people like, how was church? Oh, man, it was awesome. But so what happened? Oh, the pastor was anointed. What happened? Oh, the spirit was flowing. Okay, what did you learn? And they uh, what scripture did, did you did you retain from service? What scripture stood out in your mind that you remember? Uh, I, I've had this happen so many times. So there needs to be more. There needs to be more discipleship. I'm just going to leave it at that. But I'll agree with you. I coach yeah. on that. There's more discipleship, and that would help a lot to diffuse the power that these cults have. Yeah, yeah. I um, I, I just, you know, while you were talking, I was thinking about uh, something that I've said, uh, you know, I realized years ago when I was in college, and that was when I, I had my stint of attending a missionary Baptist church. And, mm-hmm. you know, just listening to and watching people on a weekly basis, you know, go through the motions, you know, like, like you mentioned at the start of this conversation and you you could see you know the stark contrast in you know how the word was delivered how it was received you know from me growing up in an apostolic church uh you know the emphasis on you know the the spirit and and the lack thereof you know in the in in the church that I was attending and mm-hmm. It was, it, you know, I, I started looking around and I saw that, you know, most of these people that are here, um, they're just kind of going through the motions. And then I read uh, a study uh, years ago. I read this article where they talked about uh, the average person attending church on Sunday does not open their Bible again until the following Sunday. Um, well, and here's the sad thing. Well, here's the sad thing. In today's modern world, they never open their Bible. Everybody's using phone apps. That's so, yeah. If I'm not a big proponent of phone apps, the only time you will see me using a phone app is if I left my Bible in the car and I'm already in church or something, or right. I ran out the house right. about it. Because I'm a big proponent of I want to know where to go to to find 